0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities, and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. United States Senator Chris Murphy wants to radically rein in the president's ability to use military force abroad. Chris Murphy is a Democrat from Connecticut, and along with Independent Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont and Republican Senator Mike Lee from Utah, is a co-sponsor of the new National Security Powers Act. If enacted, this legislation would give Congress far more say in matters of war and peace than it currently enjoys. This includes placing strict limits on the ability of the executive branch to conduct military operations without congressional approval, increased congressional oversight over international arms sales, and reforming how the president is able to declare a national emergency, which can sometimes enable the executive branch to supersede Congress's authorities. This legislation poses important constitutional questions about the proper role of Congress versus the executive branch in U.S. foreign policy, but for the foreign policy audience who congregates around this podcast, it also signals an increased bipartisan exasperation about the unrestrained use of military force around the world by presidents of both parties since 2001. The National Security Powers Act would, in practice, sharply curtail the never-ending, quote, war on terror and serve as a restraint against what is now an ever-expanding list of places around the world in which the U.S. has conducted military operations since 2001. Senator Chris Murphy is on the podcast today to describe the problem he sees this legislation as helping to solve and why he thinks increased congressional oversight on war powers is important for renewing and sustaining American democracy. It is always great to hear from a legislator on an issue like this and very glad to have Senator Murphy back on the show. And at the very end of this conversation, he does address a question that I think a lot of people who congregate around the United Nations will be interested in learning. So stick through to the end. All right, here is my conversation with Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: First of all, thanks for having me on. I'm really proud of this legislation. Uh, Senator Lee, Senator Sanders, and I have worked together in the past on uh, Yemen related issues, but this is the most substantive endeavor that we've been engaged in. It's a pretty comprehensive landmark piece of legislation rewriting the country's laws on war powers, arms sales, and national emergencies. Um, here's the problem it's seeking to solve. The Washington DC foreign establishment thinks it's smarter than the American public when it comes to when and how, and if we send our men and women uh, overseas to fight wars and whether we get involved in nasty foreign entanglements in far off places around the globe. And uh, I tend to think that the American people should be trusted. And I think our founding fathers thought the same. That's why they gave the power to Congress to declare war. That's why they gave a set of very specific national security powers to Congress rather than to the executive branch. And you know, well, we all grew up listening to the long-sorted history of America's involvement in Vietnam uh, unauthorized by Congress, um, more recently we've seen the United States get involved in hostilities in Libya and Yemen that I would argue didn't accrue to the national security benefit of the United States, that the American public probably wouldn't have authorized if they had been asked. So I think it's time to rein in the executive's ability to fight wars overseas. I also think it's time to limit their ability to sell weapons overseas without more public input. And I also think that uh, there's too much permissive power in the executive branch to declare national emergencies, which gives the executive branch all sorts of power without the people weighing in. So this is a pro-democracy bill. And for many of us who worry about the health of our democracy and worry about the slide away from democracy in other parts of the world, well, we have to be willing to do things, pass legislation that actually breathe life back into our own system of self-determination. And the fact of the matter is, when it comes to national security decisions, lots of power has been moving from the legislative branch to the executive branch. I think that's come at a cost to American security. Uh, I think that's also come at a cost to the health of our democracy. And that's what our legislation seeks to remedy.
0: Can you walk listeners through the three key provisions of the legislation?
1: Three key provisions are as follows. First, uh, it is a comprehensive rewrite of the War Powers Act. Probably would single out two important changes it does shorten the time frames. It requires uh, the president to come to Congress earlier. It defines what um, kind of hostilities require an authorization from Congress in a way that isn't today. But the two big changes to our powers are, one, um, it says if a uh, authorization has not been granted by Congress then the funding for that overseas endeavor is immediately and automatically terminated. Right now, Congress has to not only pass an, an authorization, um, but if it if the President continues to move forward with a military engagement without an authorization, Congress has to rescind the funding for that authorization and get signed by the President. Two, it sunsets all existing authorizations of military force requiring Congress to sort of come back to the table, in particular on the 2001 AUMF, but also says any, any authorizations moving forward can only be for two years at a time. On arms sales, again, it essentially just flips the presumption instead of Congress's current power, which is to reject a sale through a resolution that has to be signed by the president which effectively takes Congress out of the game because in order to overturn an arms sale that the president supports, you have to have a veto-proof majority. This legislation says no. For arms sales of a certain size, Congress has to proactively um, approve that arms sale or it can't go forward at all. And then lastly, similarly on national emergencies, it says the president can't declare the national emergency without a positive vote from Uh, Congress. And after a period of time, the national emergency ceases to exist unless Congress has endorsed. Now, admittedly, we can get into this. This is going to require a lot more work for Congress. Um, That's a lot of votes to have to take on arms sales and national emergencies. But I think that's what our founding fathers wanted us to do. I think they wanted us to be an active, regular presence in matters of national security. And I think that's what our constituents expect. Um, Our workload will get bigger, but I think our democracy will be stronger for it.
0: What you are proposing is a really radical shift or rethink of Congress's role in the war on terror and in national security issues. I mean, have you seen much momentum from your fellow senators or fellow members of Congress or what reception have you had from the Biden administration, if any?
1: Yeah, I mean, no no president or no executive you know, willingly gives up power. Um, and I admit that this is... You know, a very comprehensive rewrite of the nation's national security statutes, but I believe it's getting back to original intent. Um, you know, I believe that it is necessary to um, pass this legislation in order to recover the founding fathers' um, original intentions. Um, I think we have more support now than we have in the past. Um, you've got this concurrent effort uh, that that I'm involved in, but being led by Senator Kane and Senator Young to rewrite the 2001 AUMF. um, That has another uh, group of Republicans and Democrats that will likely support it. Um, I I do think that there's more interest now than ever, as we've seen some mistakes be made, uh, most recently in Yemen by the executive branch. Um, Congress, I think is more interested now than ever in correcting it. Now, do I think that this entire piece of legislation is going to pass the Congress um, in the near future? Probably not. But the idea is that this starts a conversation and that maybe there are pieces of this um, that can be taken out and debated on their own or attached to bigger pieces of legislation moving forward.
0: So we're speaking, I think, maybe 10 days after the Biden administration launched a series of drone strikes in Somalia. Drones were apparently dispatched to attack al-Shabaab militants who were fighting Somali special forces. There are no U.S. boots on the ground. You know, in a situation like that, how would your legislation have interpreted the executive branch's actions or perhaps restrained the executive branch from conducting a strike like that?
1: Well, first of all, it's shocking to most Americans that we're uh, at war in Somalia. We are. The administration has now made it clear that they believe their authorization provides them with the blanket ability to launch kinetic strikes in Somalia. Uh, At first, they seemed to suggest that this was a broad Article II power in defense of partner forces. Now they seem to be suggesting it's attached to the 2001 AUMF because al-Shabaab is affiliated with with, with terrorist groups that are uh, already subjects of authorizations. The justification has been very murky. Um, And I don't know that the American public would be very excited to know that we're engaged in this kind of uh, activity overseas without their input. What would happen differently under uh, this legislation? Uh, Well, it would expedite the time that the president needs to come to Congress um, and arguably it would shut off funding for uh, this activity uh, should it continue without authorization. Now admittedly, um, the mechanics of how that sort of shut off would happen um, would, be, would be interesting to work out because those funds are already sitting in the Department of Defense. And so the, the law would essentially say to the Department of Defense, if you don't get an authorization for war in Somalia, you can no longer use any funds for those activities. Um, I imagine that the executive branch might contest The constitutionality of that provision, this might all end up in the courts, but the difference is right now, the only way Congress can stop what's going on in Somalia is to pass a piece of legislation that says we are no longer going to fund any military uh, operations inside that country. This legislation would make that cessation of funding automatic.
0: I'm curious to learn from you where the genesis of this idea of this legislation came from. You know, was there like an aha moment when you realized that you needed to pass something like this, where the provisions, those kind of three key provisions began to to crystallize?
1: I mean, for me, this goes back to my election to Congress. So I was you know, elected in the wave year of 2006. I was you know, an opponent of the Iraq war. I got elected because of that opposition. I couldn't understand why Congress had sat on the sidelines and let the executive branch perpetuate a war that seemed so distant from our national security objectives and nobody had asked questions as it was going so badly. So from the minute I got to Congress, I was deeply invested in this mission of trying to restore Congress's oversight responsibilities um, with respect to war making. Um, but more recently, it probably has been the war in Yemen that has um, most animated me. Uh, I think it was a grave mistake for the United States to help the Saudis perpetuate that war. I think our participation in that war ended up uh, with hundreds of thousands of Yemenis being killed uh, had we opposed it from the beginning. Uh, and I deeply offended that there was never a debate in Congress, um, that my constituents were never asked whether their hard-earned taxpayer money should go into it. and. Uh, this legislation is a means to make sure that that doesn't happen again. Uh, I, I think that that's a matter of saving lives, um, better expending taxpayer dollars, and you know making Americans think that you know folks aren't um, making decisions for them in Washington, which is what they think happens here. They don't think that they are listened to. They think that Washington operates on its own momentum, and the war making that has gone on both under Democratic and Republican presidents has further eroded people's confidence in the efficacy of democracy. Uh, So I also think that that helps in, 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 in that effort as well.
0: Your response reminds me of last time we spoke in in I believe 2016 in the wake of the JCPOA and I remember you said something and I'll paraphrase somewhat exasperated that uh, you didn't realize when you were supporting the JCPOA that you were supporting this unrestricted sale of arms to Saudi Arabia that mm-hmm. they would then use to prosecute this this war in Yemen. And, uh, you know, I take it from your answer that part of your uh, intention with this legislation is to give you and your colleagues in Congress more power to restrain the executive branch's ability in terms of, of arms sales to you know, certain countries around the world.
1: Yes. Um, the scope and the size of our arms sales um, is massive today compared to you know, what it was a decade ago, especially in the Middle East uh, and you know there are huge consequences that come with the way in which we engage uh, in this kind of arms trade. You know, We found that the weapons we were selling to the United Arab Emirates were finding their way into the hands of militias um, fighting inside Yemen. We provide legitimacy to brutal regimes overseas uh, when we continue to be in such high class weapons business um, with dictators. Um, And so the fact that the sales are happening at a much more dizzying pace than they were a decade or two or three decades ago, I think means that Congress has to have a a firmer hand in uh, these decisions. You know, we tend to focus on the big sales, the sales that go to the Saudis or the Emiratis or the Israelis, but there's a whole class of lower level arms sales and security agreements happening with countries in Africa and Asia Um, that get very little notice um, and end up giving some of the same kind of cover to brutal regimes in those places as well. So I I just think Congress has been kind of okay with outsourcing all this to the administration because it is a lot of work and it's not as easy to identify friends and enemies today as it was a generation ago, but given the amount that we're doing, I think it requires Congress to get in at an earlier stage. Part
0: of your legislation requires... In practice, the repeal of the 2001 AUMF, uh, which of course was authorized to fight Al Qaeda and their affiliates after after 9/11. I mean, I was in college at the time. You you were probably you know the state legislature or something like that. I, I presume back in in 2001. But you know, here we are, uh, 20 years later. And again, as you said, the 2001 AUMF was used to. Um, Justify and to legally justify these most recent drone strikes last week in in Somalia. I mean, what does it say to you that a AUMF, that emergency provision, twenty years old, is now being used to you know prosecute drone wars today?
1: Well, no one would have imagined um, in 2001 that, A, we would still be operating under that AUMF uh, mm-hmm. 20 years later, never mind use it to be involved in counterterrorism operations in, you know, perhaps dozens of uh, of countries. Um, what the administration will say is that you know, these terrorist groups, they move seamlessly from one country to the next. They change their names frequently. Their affiliations are, are constantly shifting. And so to define, you know, specifically the name of the enemy or the territory upon which we fight um, is problematic. I understand that argument, um, but I, I, I think it, um you know, I think it really jeopardizes um, the ability of the American people to have a say here. And I think it's completely possible for Congress to, to come back on an annual basis, for instance, and update an authorization for the use of military force against terrorist groups. But it should be incumbent upon the administration to come and explain to us why we need to start hostilities in X or Y countries so that we can all sit down and decide for ourselves, is that in the best interest Uh, of our country. Um, You know, I can show you, as you've seen it, reams of data on the um, consequence of our drone strike campaign in Pakistan. Uh, Authorized under the 2001 AUMF, we were tracking down a terrorist group that had moved from Afghanistan into Pakistan. Um, But what we see is that in the places in Northwest Pakistan where we dropped the most ordnance from drones, the terrorist groups we were fighting, had the greatest recruitment efforts, because for every single one of them we killed, three or four more were drawn to the cause. Um, We should be able to talk about that in Congress. The American people should know that and then be able to make the decision for themselves as to whether we should be at war in Pakistan when they thought in 2001 that they were supporting an authorization to go to war in Afghanistan. all of that should be debated. It can be debated. The administration can come and ask for changes to the authorization, and Congress should be willing to do that job.
0: Uh, so many people who listen to this podcast tend to congregate around the United Nations. Uh, so I wanted to maybe sneak in one last question to you. You know, In the context of a more restrained U.S. foreign policy in terms of the application of of military force. What role do you see the United Nations or say even U.N. peacekeeping playing in advancing or supporting U.S. national security interests or other multilateral platforms?
1: A a key role. I mean, the case that I have been making for years here is that we are just fundamentally misresourced. to fight the battles that matter to the United States, that we have way too many uh, resources uh, on the military side and, and not enough on the civilian, humanitarian, democracy, human rights, governance, economic development side. Um, and the bad news is that that misallocation is enormous. We're spending 10 times as much money on intel and military assets as we are on smart power. The good news is we have lots of potential partners to work with. Um, It's not just our money uh, that will make a difference in helping to stabilize a country like Lebanon so that we don't have to go into that country uh, two years, three years, four years from now with U.S. military forces. We can work with our partners, but also with the U.N. on a coordinated strategy. But I will tell you, we will have a lot more leverage at the U.N. We will have a lot more leverage with our partners if we are dramatically increasing the resources that we have um, to help with economic development or help with refugee migration in a place like Lebanon—I'm just using it as an example. So I'm glad to see President Biden putting on the table a 10% increase uh, in funding for the State Department in USAID. I, I think that that will help us, you know, maybe be more influential at the UN and with our partners on building multilateral non-military approaches to countries that are on the brink of crisis right now so that we never have to spend, you know, billions of dollars in military resources on the back end like we are today in Libya or Syria.
0: Uh, Well, Senator, I I know I have to let you go. Thank you so much for your time. And I'll be interested to see how this legislation progresses. What's the next steps in, in terms of this legislation? What are you looking out towards next? What are you trying to do to advance it through Congress?
1: First thing I think is to grow co-sponsors, uh, and so we'll try to shop it around to our colleagues. Second, I think we'll you know use it to try to push forward the renegotiation of the 2001 AUMF. I think repealing the old, uh, the the, uh, the existing uh, Iraq War AUMF is important. Rewriting 2001 is important. I think we show we can do that responsibly. There'll be more people that are willing to invest in this broad reform of national security powers.
0: All right. Well, well, thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Mark. Alright, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Senator Chris Murphy for taking time to speak with me about this really, I think, indicative and frankly important piece of legislation. And maybe just one side note. Senator Murphy referenced being first elected to Congress in the wave election of 2006. He was actually elected to the Connecticut District in which I was born and raised. And... In our conversation, he mentions that it was his opposition to the uh, Iraq War that propelled his victory. And I'll just say that having grown up in that district throughout my childhood, it was very much a Republican-leaning area, sometimes represented by Democrats, but mostly by Republicans, moderate Republicans, back when there was such a thing. And since then, the entire state delegation of Connecticut has been Democrat, which was very much a consequence of a rejection of Bush and the Iraq war that he championed. Anyway, just a little kind of interesting insight into a corner of American political history and the impact and influence of questions on war and peace over American domestic politics. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.